thinking on these things. As Attorney General Bill Barr testified, December 14th should have been the end Day of the Day 7, matter. again. December 14th was the day that the state certified their votes and sent them to Congress. And in my view, that was the end of the matter. Uh, I didn't see, uh, you, you know, I, I thought that uh, this would lead inexorably to a new administration. Uh, really? Mr. Cipollone also testified that the president's chief of staff, oh, why, Mark Meadows, said he shared put this view. As early as that November 23rd meeting, we understand that there was discussion about the president possibly conceding the election. And, and specifically, uh, we understand that... Uh, he still hasn't uh, conceded. Why doesn't January 6th committee and the Justice Department... Uh, subpoena Mike Pompeo, comma, the head of the State Department at the time, question mark. Mike Pompeo said in a press conference that there would be no transition, comma, no peaceful transition, exclamation point, lock him up. Exclamation point. Lock them all up. Exclamation point. And bar them all from office. Exclamation point. A year and a half ago. Please. Exclamation point. I would say that that is a, that that is a statement and a sentiment that I heard from. Mr. Meadows has refused to testify and the committee is in litigation with him. But many other White House officials shared the view that once the litigation ended and the Electoral College met, the election was over. And here is President Trump's former press secretary. I wanted to clarify, uh, Ms. McEnany, so back to my previous question, it was your view then, or was it your view, that the efforts to overturn the election should have stopped once the litigation was complete? In my view, um, upon the conclusion of litigation uh, was when I, I began to plan for life after the administration. And this is what Ivanka Trump told us. December 14th was the day on which the Electoral College met, when these electors around the country met and cast the electoral votes consistent with the, the, the popular vote in each state. And, and it was obviously a, a public proceeding or, or a series of proceedings that President Biden had obtained the requisite number of electors. Was that an important day for you? Did that affect sort of your, your planning or your realization as to whether or not there was going to be an end of, of this administration? I think so. I think it was my my sentiment probably prior as well. Judd Deere was probably prior with the press secretary. This was his testimony about what he told President Trump. 
I told him that my personal viewpoint was that the Electoral College had met, uh, which is the uh, system that our uh, country is, is set under to elect a president and vice president. Mm -hmm. And I believed at that point that the uh, means for him to pursue uh, litigation um, uh, was probably closed. And you recall what his response, if any, was? He disagreed. We've also seen this testimony from Attorney General Barr reflecting a view of the White House staff in late November 2020. And then at that point, I left. And as I walked out of the Oval Office, Jared was there with Dan Scavino, who ran his ran the president's um, social media and who I thought was a reasonable guy and believe is a reasonable guy. And I said, uh, how long is how long is he going to? carry on with this uh, stolen election stuff. Where is this going to go? And by that time, uh, Meadows had caught up with me and uh, leaving the office and caught up to me and, and said uh, that uh, uh, he said, look, I, I, I think uh, that he's becoming more realistic and knows that there's a limit to how far he can take this. Yeah. And then Jared said, you know, yeah, we're working on this. We're working on it. Huh. Likewise, in this testimony, Cassidy Hutchinson, an aide to Mark Meadows, described her conversations with President Trump's director of national intelligence, John Ratcliffe, a former Republican congressman. He had expressed that he was concerned that he could spiral out of control. And of course, underlying all of this is the fundamental principle that the President of the United States cannot simply disregard the rulings of state and federal courts, which are empowered to address specific election-related claims. He cannot simply pretend that the courts have not ruled. By that time, uh, the president or his associates had brought, had lost 60 out of 61 cases uh, uh, that they had brought to challenge uh, different aspects of uh, the election in, in a number of states. They lost 60 out of 61 of those cases. Um, so by the time we get to January 3rd, that, that's, that's been clear. Um, I assume, Pat, that you would agree the president is is uh, obligated to abide by the rulings of the courts. Of course. And and I assume you also everybody everybody is obligated to abide by the rulings of the courts. And I assume you also would agree the president has a particular obligation to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. That is one of the president's obligations, correct? Yet President Trump disregarded these court rulings and the counsel from his closest advisors and continued his efforts to cling to power. In our prior hearings, you have heard considerable testimony about President Trump's attempts to corruptly pressure Vice President Pence to refuse to count electoral votes, to corrupt the Department of Justice, to pressure to state officials them. and state legislatures, and to create and submit a series of fake electoral slates. 
Now, we will show you what other actions President Trump was taking between December 14th, 2020 and January 6th. I yield to the gentleman from Maryland, Mr. Raskin. Thank you, Ms. Murphy. Throughout our hearings, you've heard how President Trump made baseless claims that voting machines were being manipulated by foreign powers in the 2020 election. You've also heard Trump's attorney general, Bill Barr, describe such claims as complete nonsense, which he told the president. Let's review that testimony. I saw absolutely zero basis for the allegations, but they were made in such a sensational way that they obviously were influencing a lot of people, uh, members of the public, that there was this systemic corruption in the system and that their votes didn't count and that these machines controlled by somebody else were actually determining it, which was complete nonsense. And it was being laid out there. And I told them that it was that it was uh, crazy stuff and they were wasting their time on that. And uh, it was doing a great, grave disservice to the country. We've learned that President Trump's White House counsel agreed with the Department of Justice about this. Attorney General Barr made a public announcement on December 1st, less than a month, that he had seen no suspended fraud sufficiently. Fair to say that by December 1st, you had reached the scene. It's fair to say that I agree with Attorney General Barr. Attorney General Barr's conclusion on December 1st, um, yes, I did, and I supported that conclusion. However, the strong rejection of the Attorney General and the White House counsel of these claims did not stop the President from trying to press them in public. But that's not all he did. Indeed, as you'll see in this clip, the President asked Attorney General Bill Barr to have the Department of Justice seize voting machines in the states. My recollection is the President said something like, uh, well, we could get to the bottom, you know, some people say we could get to the bottom of this if, if the Department sees the machines. It was a typical way of raising a point. And I said, absolutely not. There's no probable cause, and we're not going to seize any machines. And that was that. Yeah. But this wasn't the end of the matter. On the evening of December 18th, 2020, Sidney Powell, General Michael Flynn, and others entered the White House for an unplanned meeting with the president, the meeting that would last multiple hours and become hot-blooded and contentious. The executive order behind me on the screen was drafted on December the 16th, just two days after the Electoral College vote, by several of the president's outside advisors over a luncheon at the Trump International Hotel. As you can see here, this proposed order directs the Secretary of Defense to seize voting machines, quote, effective immediately. But it goes even further than that. Under the order, President Trump would appoint a special counsel with the power to seize machines and then charge people with crimes with all resources necessary to carry out her duties. The specific plan was to name Sidney Powell as special counsel. The Trump lawyer <laughs> had spent the post-election period making outlandish claims Fucking about Venezuelan lady. and Chinese interference in the election, among others. Here's what White House counsel Pat Cipollone had to say about Sidney Powell's qualifications to take on such expansive authority. I don't think Sidney Powell would say that I thought it was a good idea to appoint her special counsel. I was vehemently, I didn't think she should have been appointed to anything. 
Sydney Powell told the president that these steps were justified she's disbarred, because of huh? evidence of foreign interference in the 2020 election. However, as we've seen, Trump's allies had no such evidence and, of course, no legal authority for the federal government to seize state voting machines. Here's Mr. Cipollone again denouncing Sidney Powell's terrible idea. Mm-hmm. There was a real question in my mind and a real concern you know, particularly after the attorney general had reached the conclusion that there wasn't sufficient election fraud to change the outcome of the election, when other people kept suggesting that there was, the answer is, what is it? And at some point, you'd have to put up or shut up. That was my view. Why was this on the broader scale a bad idea for the country? Have the federal government seize voting machines? That's a terrible idea for the country. That's not how we do things in the United States. Gestapo, that's a Gestapo. And there is a way to contest elections, you know, that, that happens all the time. But the idea that the federal government could come in and seize election machines, you know, that. I don't, I don't understand why we would tell you why that's a bad idea. It's a terrible idea. <laughs> For all of its absurdity, the December 18th meeting was critically important because President Trump got to watch up close for several hours as his White House counsel and other White House lawyers destroyed the baseless factual claims and ridiculous legal arguments being offered by Sidney Powell, Mike Flynn, and others. President Trump now knew all these claims were nonsense, not just from his able White House lawyers, but also from his own Department of Justice officials and indeed his own campaign officials. As White House counsel Pat Cipollone told us, with respect to the whole election fraud issue, it, to me, is sort of a period of those kind of claims. And people were open to them early on because people were making all sorts of claims. And the question is, show the others. Okay. It wasn't just the Justice Department, the Trump campaign, and the Trump White House lawyers who knew it. Even Rudy Giuliani's own legal team admitted that they did not have any real evidence of fraud sufficient to change the election result. Yeah, 86 times. Here's an email from Rudy Giuliani's In lead court. investigator, Bernie Carrick, on December 28, 2020. That's why Giuliani got this part too. Ha ha. Mr. Carrick did not mince any words. We can do all the investigations we want later, but if the president plans on winning, it's the legislators that have to be moved, and this will do just that. Mr. Carrick wanted the president to win. What he didn't say in this email was what he would later tell the select committee in a letter that his lawyer wrote to us in November. The letter said, quote, It was impossible for Mr. Carrick and his team to determine conclusively whether there was widespread fraud or whether that widespread fraud would have altered the outcome of the election. In other words, even Rudy Giuliani's own legal team knew before January 6th that they hadn't collected enough actual evidence to support any of their stolen election claims. Here's what Trump campaign senior advisor Jason Miller told the committee about some of the so-called evidence of fraud that the campaign had seen from the Giuliani team. So do you know of the examples of fraud 
numbers, names, and supporting evidence was that you sent to Mo Brooks's office, and when I say you, I mean you were the campaign. There are some very, very general uh, documents as far as um, uh, as far as say, for example, here are the handful of dead people in several different states. Um, here are uh, explanations on a couple of the legal challenges as far as the saying that the, um, the rules were changed in an unconstitutional manner. Uh, but it was to say that it was in, uh, it's, it's probably an understatement. Here's how President Trump's deputy campaign manager described the evidence of fraud that the campaign had seen. You never came to uh, learn or understand that Mayor Giuliani had uh, had produced evidence of election fraud. Is that fair? That's fair. And here's testimony that we received from the Speaker of the Arizona House of Representatives, Rusty Bowers, about an exchange that he had with Rudy Giuliani after the election. At some point, did uh, one of them uh, make a comment that... Uh... They didn't have evidence, but they had a lot of theories. That was Mr. Giuliani. My friend was killed because of something monstrous that he had seen. We're accused of killing someone. We can get out of it. I'll screw this up. Amsterdam, radar. Only in theaters October 7th. Chief of Staff Mark Meadows told people that he thought Trump should concede around the time the Electoral College certified the results. But nonetheless, he later worked to try to facilitate President Trump's wishes. Here's what Cassidy Hutchinson told us. During this period, he, um, I perceived his goal with all of this to keep Trump in office. Um, you know, he had very seriously and deeply considered the allegations of voter fraud. But when he began acknowledging that maybe there wasn't enough voter fraud to overturn the election, you know, I witnessed him start to explore potential constitutional loopholes more extensively which are then connected with Johnny Eastman's theories. The startling conclusion is this. Even an agreed-upon complete lack of evidence could not stop President Trump, Mark Meadows, and their allies from trying to overturn the results of a free and fair election. So let's return to that meeting at the White House on the evening of December 18. That night, a group showed up at the White House, including Sidney Powell, retired Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, and former Overstock.com CEO Patrick Byrne. After gaining access to the building from a junior White House staffer, the group made their way to the Oval Office. They were able to speak with the president by himself for some time until White House officials learned of the meeting. What ensued was a heated and profane clash between this group and President Trump's White House advisors, who traded personal insults, accusations of disloyalty to the president, and even challenges to physically fight. <laughs> the meeting would last over six That'd hours, be fun beginning to see these here fat in the Oval Office, moving around the West Wing, and many hours later, ending up in the president's private residence. 
The select committee has spoken with six of the participants, as well as staffers who could hear the screaming from outside the Oval Office. What took place next is best told in their own words, as you will see from this video. Did you believe that it was going to work, that you were going to be able to get to see the president uh, without an appointment? I have no idea. Uh, in fact, you did get to see the president without an appointment. We did. How much time did you have alone with the president? And I say alone. You had other people with you. Personally? But I think from his aides before the crowd came running. Uh, probably no more than 10 or 15 minutes. It's was in that, I bet that's the baloney set a new land speed record. I got a call either from Molly and I need to get to the old so that was the first point that I had recognized. Okay, there was nobody in there from the White House. Mark's gone. What's going on right now? I opened the door and I walked in. I saw Jordan <laughs> I saw Sidney Powell sitting there. I was not happy to see the people in the old office. Well, again, I, I don't think they were providing. Well, first of all, the overstock person. I, I never, Actually, the first thing I did, I walked in, I looked at him, and I said, who are you? And he told me, I don't think, I don't think any of these people were providing the president with good advice. And so I, I, I didn't understand how they had gotten in. In the short period of time that you had with the president, did uh, uh, he seem receptive to the presentation reason. that you were making? He was very interested in hearing particularly about the census findings and the terms of 13848 that apparently nobody else had bothered to inform him of. I was asking, like, you claim the Democrats were working with Hugo Chavez, Venezuelans, and whomever else. And at one point, uh, General Flynn took out a diagram that supposedly showed IP addresses all over the world and who was, who was communicating with whom via the machines and some comment about like Nest thermostats being hooked up to the internet. So it's been reported that during this meeting, Ms. Powell talked about Dominion voting machines and made various election fraud claims that involved foreign countries such as Venezuela, Iran, and China. Is that accurate? Was the meeting tense? Yeah. Uh, Fucking crazy. I, it was not a casual meeting. Explain. I mean, at times there were people shouting at each other, throwing insults at each other. Um, it wasn't just sort of people sitting around on a couch, like, chit-chatting. Do you recall when you raised to Ms. Powell the fact that she and the campaign had lost all of the 60 cases that they had brought in litigation? Yes, he raised that. And what was the response? I don't remember. She said, I don't think it was a good response. Cipollone and Hirschman and uh, whoever the other guy was showed nothing but contempt and disdain uh, of the president. The three of them were really sort of forcefully attacking me inadvertently. Derek, Derek, and we were pushing back and we were asking one simple question. 
as a, as a general matter, where is the evidence? So, what response did you get when you asked this panel and her colleagues? Where's the a variety of responses based on my current recollection, including, you know, I can't believe you would say something, you know, things like this, like, what do you mean, where's the evidence? You should know, you know, and things like that, or, you know, a disregard, I would say, a general disregard for the importance of actually backing up what you say with facts. And, you know, then there was discussion of, well, you know, we don't have it now, but we will have it or whatever. I mean, if, if it had been me sitting in his chair, I would have fired all of them that night and had them escorted out of the building. It's terrible, and I both challenged what she was saying. And she says, well, the judges are corrupt. And I was like, everyone, every single case that you've done in the country you guys lost, every one of them is corrupt, even the ones we appointed. And but I'm being nice. I was much more harsh to her. So one of the other things that's been reported that was said during this meeting was that President Trump told White House lawyers, Mr. Hirschman and Mr. Cipollone, that they weren't offering him any solutions, but Ms. Powell and others were. So why not try um, what Ms. Powell and others were proposing? Do you remember anything along those lines being said by President Trump? I do. That sounds right. I think that it got to the point where the screaming was... Completely, completely out there. I mean, you got people walking. It was late at night. It had been a long day. And what they were proposing, I thought was nuts. I'm going I'm to categorically describe it as you guys are not tough enough. Or maybe I put it another way. You're a bunch of pussies. <laughs> the expression. But that, that's... I, I'm almost certain the word yeah. was used. He was screaming at me that I was a quitter, and I was get them standing up and turning around and screaming at me. And then at a certain point, I had it with him. So I yelled back. I had to come over or sit your effing ass back down. The president and the White House team went upstairs to the residence, but to the... Uh, uh, part of the residence, you know, the big, the big parlor where you can have meetings in the conference room. They call it the yellow oval? Yes, exactly, the yellow oval. I always called it the upper. Um, and I'm not exactly sure where the Sydney group went. I think maybe the Roosevelt room. And I stayed in the cabinet room, which is kind of cool. I really like that. All, my, all by myself. At the end of the day, we landed where we started the meeting at least from a structural standpoint, which was Sidney Powell was fighting, Mike Flynn was fighting. They were looking for avenues that would enable, that would result in President Trump remaining President Trump for a second term. The meeting finally ended and after midnight. Come up with Here are idea. text messages sent by Cassidy Hutchinson during and after the meeting. That's all they could come up with. As you can see, <laughs> Ms. Hutchinson reported that the meeting in the West Wing was unhinged. <laughs> the meeting finally broke up after nice midnight word. during the early morning of December 19. Cassidy Hutchinson captured the moment of Mark Meadows <laughs> escorting Rudy Giuliani off the White House grounds to, quote, make sure he didn't wander back into the mansion. 
Certain accounts of this meeting indicate that President Trump actually granted Ms. Powell security clearance and appointed her to a somewhat ill-defined position of special counsel. He asked Pat Cipollone if he had the authority to name me special counsel, and he said yes. And then he asked him if he had the authority to give me whatever security clearance I needed, and Pat Cipollone said yes. And then the president said, okay, you know, I'm naming her that, and I'm giving her security clearance. And then shortly before we left and it totally blew up, that's when uh, Cipollone and or Hirschman and whoever the other young man was said, you can name her whatever you want to name her, and no one's going to pay any attention to it. How did he respond? How did the president respond to that? Uh, something like, you see what I deal with, I deal with this all the time. Over the ensuing days, no further steps were taken to appoint Sidney Powell, but there is some ambiguity about what the president actually said and did during the meeting. Here is how Pat Cipollone described it. I don't know what her understanding of whether she had been appointed, what she had been appointed to. Okay. In my view, she hadn't been appointed to anything and ultimately wasn't were any steps taken, including the president himself, telling her she'd been appointed? Again, I'm not going to get into what the president said in the meeting. Uh, you know, my recollection is you, you're not appointed. You're not appointed until, until steps are taken to get the paperwork done. Get, and when I left the meeting, okay, the, I guess I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm not going to get into what the president said. Mr. Cipollone, when um, the, the matter continued to flare up over the next several days, was it your understanding that Sidney Powell was still seeking an appointment or that she was asserting that she had been appointed by the president at the December 18th meeting? You know, now that you mentioned it, probably both. You know, in, in terms of like, I think she was. I think she may have been of the view that she had been appointed and was seeking to, you know, get get that done, and uh, and and that she should be. As you listen to these clips, remember that Ms. Powell, the person who President Trump tried to make special counsel, was ultimately sanctioned by a federal court and sued by Dominion Voting Systems. For defamation. In her own defense to that lawsuit, Sidney Powell argued that, quote, no reasonable person would conclude that the statements were truly statements of fact. Not long after Sidney Powell, General Flynn, and Rudy Giuliani, Giuliani left the White House in the early hours of the morning, President Trump turned away from both his outside advisors' most outlandish and unworkable schemes and his White House counsel's advice to swallow hard and accept the reality of his loss. Instead, Donald Trump issued a tweet that would galvanize his followers, unleash a political firestorm, and change the course of our history as a country. Trump's purpose was to mobilize a crowd. And how do you mobilize a crowd in 2020? With millions of followers on Twitter, President Trump knew exactly how to do it. 
At 1.42 a.m. on December 19, 2020, shortly after the last participants left the unhinged meeting, Trump sent out the tweet with his explosive invitation. Trump repeated his big lie and claimed it was, quote, statistically impossible to have lost the 2020 election before calling for a big protest in D.C. on January 6th. Be there will be wild. Trump supporters responded immediately. Women for America First, a pro-Trump organizing group, had previously applied for a rally permit for January 22nd and 23rd in Washington, D.C., several days after Joe Biden was to be inaugurated. But in the hours after the tweet, they moved their permit to January 6th, two weeks before. This rescheduling created the rally where Trump would eventually speak. The next day, Ali Alexander, leader of the Stop the Steal organization and a key mobilizer of Trump supporters, registered wildprotest.com, named after Trump's tweet. Wildprotest.com provided comprehensive information about numerous newly organized protest events in Washington. It included event times, places, speakers, and details on transportation in Washington, D.C. Meanwhile, other key Trump supporters, including far-right media, <laughs> began promoting the wild <laughs> protest on January 6th. It's Saturday, December 19th. The year is 2020. And one of the most historic events in American history has just taken place. President Trump, in the early morning hours today, tweeted that he wants the American people to march on Washington, D.C. on January 6, 2021. And now Donald Trump is calling on his supporters to descend on Washington, D.C., January 6th. He is now calling on we, the people, to take action and to show our numbers. We're going to only be saved by millions of Americans moving to Washington occupying the entire area if if necessary storming right into the capital you know there we we know the rules of engagement if you have enough people you can push down any kind of a fence or a wall this could be trump's last stand and it's a time when he has specifically called on his supporters to arrive in dc that's something that may actually be the big push trump supporters need to say this is it it's now or never. You better understand something, son. You better understand something. Red wave, bitch. Red wave. This is going to be a red wedding going down January 6th. On that day, Trump says, show up for a protest. It's going to be wild. Red and based on what we've already seen from the previous shit. events, I think Trump is absolutely correct. Motherfucker, you better look outside. <laughs> you better look out January 6th. Kick that fucking door open. Look down the street. There's going to be a million plus geeked up armed Americans. <laughs> the time for games is over. The time for action is now. Where were you when history called? Where were you when you and your children's destiny and future was on the line? In that clip, you heard one of Trump supporters predict a red wedding, which is a pop culture reference to mass slaughter. But the point is that Trump's call to Washington reverberated powerfully and pervasively online. The committee has interviewed a former Twitter employee who explained the effect that Trump had on the Twitter platform. 
This employee was on the team responsible for platform and content moderation policies on Twitter throughout 2020 and 2021. The employee testified that Twitter considered adopting a stricter content moderation policy after President Trump told the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by from the lectern at the September 29th presidential debate. But Twitter chose not to act. Here's the former employee whose voice has been obscured to protect their identity, discussing Trump's stand back and stand by comment in the effect it had. My concern was that the former president, for seemingly the first time, was speaking directly to extremist organizations um, and giving them directives. Um, we had not seen that sort of direct communication before, um, and that concerned me. So just to clarify further, um, you were worried and others at Twitter were worried that the president might use your platform to speak directly to folks who might be invited to violence. I believe that Twitter relished in the knowledge that they were also the favorite and most used service of um, the former president and enjoyed having that sort of power within the social media ecosystem. If President Trump or anyone else, would it have taken until January 2021 for him to be suspended? Absolutely not. Despite these grave concerns, Trump remained on the platform completely unchecked. Then came the December 19 tweet and everything it inspired. Indeed, Thing this tweet on December 
essentially staking a flag in D.C. on January 6th for his supporters to come and rally. And you were concerned about the potential for this gathering becoming violent? Absolutely. Indeed, many of Trump's followers took to social media to declare that they were ready to answer Trump's call. One user asked, is the sixth D-Day, is that why Trump wants everyone there? Another asserted, Trump just told us all to come armed. Fucking A, this is happening. A third took it even further. It will be wild means we need volunteers for the firing squad. Jim Watkins, the owner of 8Coon, the fringe online forum that was birthplace of the QAnon extremist movement, confirmed the importance of Trump's tweet. Why did you first decide to go to D.C. for January 6th? When, when the president of the United States announced that he was going to have a rally, then I bought a ticket and went. Watkins was at the Capitol on January 6th. Some who have since been indicted for their involvement in the attack on the Capitol also responded. One of them posted on the 19th, quote, calling all patriots, be in Washington, D.C., January the 6th. This wasn't organized by any group. DJT has invited us, and it's going to be wild. Some of the online rhetoric turned openly homicidal and white nationalist, such as, why don't we just kill them, every last Democrat, down to the last man, woman, and child? And it's time for the day of the rope. White revolution is the only solution. Others realized that police would be standing in the way of their effort to overturn the election. So one wrote, I'm ready to die for my beliefs. Are you ready to die, police? Another wrote on the Donald.win, cops don't have standing if they're laying on the ground in a pool of their own blood. The Donald.win was an openly racist and anti-Semitic forum. The select committee deposed that site's founder, Jody Williams. He confirmed how the president's tweet created a laser-like focus on the date of January the 6th. People have been talking about going to D.C. as soon as the election was over. And do you recall whether or not the conversation around those dates centered on the 6th after the president's tweet? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, after it was announced that, you know, he was going to be there on the 6th to talk. Yes. Then then anything else was kind of shut out and it was just going to be on the 6th. Okay. And that was pretty clearly reflected in the, the, co- the content on, on the site? On that site, many shared plans and violent threats. Bring handcuffs and wait near the tunnels, wrote one user. A commenter replied, suggesting zip ties instead. One post encouraged others to come with body armor, knuckles, shields, bats, pepper spray, whatever it takes. All of those were used on the 6th. The post concluded... Join your local Proud Boys chapter as well. The Donald.win featured discussions of the tunnels beneath the Capitol complex, suggestions for targeting members of Congress, and encouragement to attend this once-in-a-lifetime event. 
While Trump supporters grew more aggressive online, he continued to rile up his base on Twitter. He said there was overwhelming evidence that the election was the biggest scam in our nation's history. As you can see, the president continued to boost the event, tweeting about it more than a dozen times in the lead up to January the 6th. Mr. Chairman, I reserve. The chair requests that those in the hearing room remain seated until the Capitol Police have escorted members from the room. Pursuant to the order of the committee of today, the chair declares the committee in recess for a period of approximately 10 minutes. And with that, after that explosive testimony, the chairman brings down the gavel. Katie, I have witnessed so many hearings going all the way back, Iran Contra. I have never seen anything like this. That was this one of the wildest things I've ever seen, Andrea. One of the wildest things that I've ever seen. The December 18th meeting some of these people, you know, I guess it was to Patrick Burke, you know, who are you and what are you doing in here? And then the president saying that they're giving him solutions and you're not. And the cursing, the shouting, Rudy Giuliani sitting alone in the cabinet room and saying he thought that was kind of cool. And then Mark Meadows you know, being designated to walk him out down the path and make sure he didn't sneak back into the residence. And this was in the Oval Office of the White House with the President of the United States and him then turning to Sidney Powell after they had pointed out that 60-plus federal judges, many appointed by Donald Trump, had moved against her and them and that she was being appointed a special counsel with security clearances. And Eric Hirschman saying to her, you think all of those 60 judges that ruled against you were all corrupt, every single one of them, even the ones that the Donald Trump administration appointed? I mean, what you have there in that Oval Office is the, and this is the Trump world, the professionals versus the, I don't even know what you'd call them. The not professionals is the most diplomatic way of putting it. Uh, the conspiracy theorists. You have the DOJ lawyers. You have Freaks. the White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, saying, show us the evidence of the fraud that you're claiming. Give us the evidence for these allegations. These This Venezuela is involved and China's involved. The Nest thermostats are involved huh. because they're connected to, to the inter- Internet. Show us the evidence. And, and yeah. Cipollone saying it seemed as if they had no regard for evidence at all, that they didn't need anything at all. Just the the retelling of that Oval Office meeting from those who were in that meeting, from Sidney Powell to Eric Hirschman to Pat Cipollone, Rudy Giuliani. I mean, remarkable, again, that it happened with the President of the United States in the Oval Office. This is now multiple days after December 14th, which is the day that the states certified their election, the day that every professional in the Trump administration basically said it was over. 
It's done, it's over, we've exhausted our resources, and yet Donald and Trump Trump's is still looking for reality more options. Um, and Andrea, just, like, again, I, 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 you've seen a lot, I haven't seen quite as much <laughs> as you have, but that was, that was incredible. I think you could come to this with no experience at all, and we've got to have been, you covered Donald Trump, but to see you this fucking played out, be uh, so let's bring Nazi. in our panel, Chuck Rosenberg, Frank Figluzzi, Michael Steele, Joyce Hitler Banks, and Collins, Clint Watts, Nonsense, uh, for me, uh, perhaps bullshit. the most dramatic thing was then, them connecting Chuck Rosenberg, connecting the craziness of that meeting with the, after one in the morning, then the president goes on Twitter. And his response is to call them to, to Washington on the 6th, and it's going to be wild. And then connecting that tweet to the response from the extremist groups. That being played out is just the connection that you have to see. I ask Frank or Joyce, prosecutors and agents love timelines. And so you see the craziest meeting in the Trump administration on December 18th. You see that... Um, remarkable tweet from the president about the gathering remarkable. in washington dc which will be wild in his words and then you see the reaction to the tweet that's why we love timelines because when you look at these in isolation it doesn't tell the same story as when you put it on a chart very disturbing clinton ben i was sitting next to you guys as we watched this you were going through the transcript give me your reaction i just Let's go back to all the characters that we've seen consistently, going all the way back to the first Mueller investigation, right? Now they're in the White House. Yeah. They've been pardoned, you know, some of them. They're creating another conspiracy, which is just unraveling the country, except this time we're sending a violent insurrection ultimately in, into the Capitol. And to add on top of it, I think the timeline that Chuck mentions is super important because you see the amplification the very next day. You see the organization the very next day. This is the same kind of behavior that we saw in international terrorism circles a decade ago. Um, where Aliki says, hey, has anybody thought about an attack like this or doing something like this? Someone does it later. So after that meeting, after Donald Trump is told by the professionals in his White House that there is no evidence, you can't go further, after that he tweets at one in the morning it will be wild and as we're talking about that was a, a rally that was a rallying cry for a number of people out there who thought that it was time to get violent then you saw it happen in real time yeah katie you're through this closed feedback loop the entire thing the way they were getting that fake information that you know hugo chavez and all, the, all these other dead people were getting the election from venezuela and the nest thermostats and all this banana stuff they didn't invent that in that room they got that from places like the donalds or places like 4chan and then what did you see at the end of that specific part of the hearing you saw those places get wild up enough to say, like, these are the tunnels underneath the Capitol. This is where we need to block off uh, on the day of the Capitol. This is where we need to meet up. If Donald Trump had said, I, I, I concede this is over, Joe Biden won, would those people have still done what they did? I, I don't know. I, ju I just no. don't know. But I can I tell know. you that they wouldn't have this organizing principle. They wouldn't have this date. They wouldn't have this one Super Bowl that they were pointing towards for weeks. And Frank for Lucy, so you're... You're from the FBI, you're, you've been a prosecutor. You see this played out, and you see the response of the extremist groups. As a former FBI guy, what do you say? Yeah, well, I've never prosecuted, but I certainly investigated uh, alongside prosecutors. And, and here's my take on this. What we just saw was a story of the contrast between legality 
and lethality. The story of the rule of law versus the rule of Trump. What's the rule of Trump? If you can't get what you want lawfully, then you get it unlawfully. And we saw that in the chronology played out here today. I'm not getting what I want. Apparently, these people who are all about the rule of law don't like what I want. So I'm going to get it some other way. And that's where we saw the switch to social media and the tweet and behind the scenes, the reaction at Twitter as to what is transpiring in reaction to that. And so you, you can see now where legally, criminally, you are building the case. You are connecting some dots to causality and Trump should have known what was being caused because now we know why he did it. Let's go back to the very beginning of the hearing where Liz Cheney said, this is not an impressionable child. I know that he's spoken of that way. Donald Trump is not a child. He's not a toddler. He is a grown man who was told by the other grown men and women around him in professional positions that he lost the election. There was no fraud. He lost. He lost. He lost. He lost. (laughs) Told over and over again and told what he could not do. And yet he kept going with it. Michael, what happens after this? I, I don't know, but I, I'm trying to find a drink because <laughs> this, this stuff this morning was crazy. I mean, I mean, the, the tweet that says the West Wing was unhinged encapsulated exactly everything that we've heard uh, today. Um, and, and I think the point you just made, Katie, is an important one uh, that was made by Liz Cheney, that all of this happened because... A grown man wanted it to happen. Um, He may act like a petulant child. People may try to cast him off as somehow unintelligent and unengaged. None of that is the case. Uh, Donald Trump, in that scene, and I've, I've witnessed this firsthand, as I'm sure you have, Katie, in covering Donald Trump, he relished in that fight in that in that office. He loved it because for him it was about who's going to stick up and do what I want him to do, who's going to fight for what I want done, and you saw those battle lines clearly jo- uh, uh, enjoined and and drawn uh, by the competing interests in uh, you know for the ear of Donald Trump. He loved that moment. That's his mindset. That's what motivates and animates him. And if anyone, I don't care how good of a lawyer you think you are, sits there and can make the case that there is no mens rea here, that there is no uh, intent by Donald Trump to manipulate this situation to achieve an outcome, you don't understand what's happening in front of you. And we can see now that the witnesses have come in, the witnesses uh, that you're going to hear from the former press spokesperson, spokesman for the OFK, for Jason and also Stephen Ayers, who was one of the protesters who said he went there because of the president. Uh, They're going to be speaking. Uh, Joyce Vance, as a former prosecutor, this is laid out. It is laid out. It's still challenging for prosecutors, and that's frustrating for all of us because the evidence seems very clear. And we have, as as people have said, this sort of call and response behavior. What we still need to learn, though, is when did the agreement happen? Because the essence of proving a conspiracy is proving an agreement by a specific group of people to achieve certain objectives. And that sounds cold and legalistic with everything that we've seen. I mean, this is just revelatory hearing some of what we've heard today. This unscheduled meeting that takes place in the White House, something that just doesn't happen. 
That meeting and the tweet that follows it has always looked to me like a potential event where the conspiracy could have been formed. That's one of the things I'll be listening for in the rest of today's testimony. All right, just to give you a little bit more information on who's in that room right now, the man in the suit is Stephen Ayers. He is an Ohio man who pleaded guilty last month to one federal charge of disorderly conduct after illegally entering the Capitol on January 6th. Uh, court filings show that Ayers said he drove to D.C. on January 5th to protest Congress's certification of the 2020 presidential election, uh, and he did so, we believe he's going to say, because he thinks the president told him to. Um, also so Jason Van Tatenhove, he's a former Oath Keepers spokesman. It's important to note, though, that he left the Oath Keepers many years before January 6th. So it is expected that he will testify to who the Oath Keepers were, are, and what they were intending, their, the intention of their organization. Give a little color to it. He's a former employee who has not been associated with the organization for many years, but who has spoken out and continues to do so today about the serious danger such violent extremist groups like the Oath Keepers still pose. Um, Chuck, we're about to go right back into this. What will you be watching for in this second half? You know, this is an interesting point, I think, Katie. We've heard from a lot of stand-up people like Cassidy Hutchinson and Pat Cipollone, right, folks who did the right thing. You might not like their politics, but they were principled and uh, were truthful. A lot of times in a criminal case, you have to put on bad people, gang members, bank robbers, drug dealers, and you have to explain to the jury that you take your witnesses as you find them. And we're about to hear from two witnesses who I think are not the principled um, folks we've been hearing from so far. They're not the cops. They're not the White House counsel. Uh, these are, mem you know, in, in one case, a former spokesman for the Oath Keepers. These another son has already pled guilty in federal court. Uh, from the because of his participation in the insurrection. So keep in mind, you take your witnesses as you find them. I used to tell juries all the time, I wish all of my witnesses were nuns and librarians, but it doesn't always turn out that way, Katie. And you uh, said the photographer is taking uh, pictures of, them, of the witnesses, Katie. I just want to ask Chuck quickly about the testimony of the former spokesman mm -hmm. for the Oath Keepers, because he was not involved contemporaneously with anything involving January 6th or the election, or the refusal to recognize the election. So how much can that be discredited? Well, in terms of telling a story, making a presentation at a congressional hearing, he could be helpful and useful. Uh, if you're asking me whether he would probably be a witness at a criminal trial, that seems very unlikely to me, Andrea. Okay. I wonder, though, when we're going to watch this, if this is going to be, Chuck, the link back to... Donald Trump. Is, is, is it going to be um, this witness, uh, Stephen Ayers, saying that, that Donald Trump was the one who told me to go there? Donald Trump was the one that called me to action. We've seen, and I'll actually put this to Frank, uh, we've seen a number of, of court filings from the people Didn't who were get on the, on, phone at the Capitol that day, the insurrectionists, the rioters, they have uh, that, that their defense was, they were told to be there by I the President of the United States in the immediate... In the videos of that day, you heard people say, we were invited here by the president. Frank, yeah. what do you think of that? Well, of course, now we're finding in, in many of those cases that they're still being penalized. They're still getting uh, either prison, fines, probation. So it's not working for them. But I think the overall aspect of this, the importance of it, is to show that people were responding to the commander-in-chief, calling them to do something unlawful. And now we're seeing the commander-in-chief 
through the witness's testimony. What happens when you let President Jim Jones take office, man? You guys got to get off your big, fat, lazy butts and call all three branches of government and wear a freaking mask in public indoor spaces. And see you next time. Bye. Hey, welcome back. We are listening to the day seven of January 6th committee. Like potential Oath Keepers members and Proud Wave members, this is a house of cards. You've been duped. You're believing a lie. That's part of the value today and part of this next witness telling us really what the story is and why Oath Keepers was founded. And Chuck Rosenberg, when you look at the overall texture of this, you have to take a step back and realize how profoundly crazy it was for the Oval Office to be the setting in a meeting that goes till midnight with people shouting at each other and cursing and calling each other unprintable, unspeakable names, that this would be happening with the president of the United States. Yeah, I was surprised when I heard it described as the craziest meeting of the Trump administration in the White House. I thought to myself, Andrea, what could that possibly be? Because we've heard about lots of crazy meetings. I think now we have an answer to that question. Uh, You know, don't lose the details here. They came with a draft executive order that would name Sidney Powell special counsel and give the Department of Defense, the United States Department of Defense, authority to seize voting machines. That was on the table. My goodness. In fact, I'm so glad you brought that up because, Katie, when you think about that, to have the military taking over the election for a, to contest an election, and we saw... Cipollone, Pat Cipollone, saying that that was a terrible idea. Bill Barr is saying that that was a terrible idea. He thought it had been put to rest, but it hadn't been. So you also had, in the run-up to that confrontation in the Oval Office, you had the Attorney General, the White House Counsel, saying that they told the President this was a terrible, terrible idea, that the election had been decided, and that it had been contested, and that that's not the way we contest elections in the United States. Quoting saying Cipollone on tape. Also saying that it, he didn't feel like he even needed to explain why the government couldn't seize voting machines, that it was absolutely crazy. That's not what we do in this country. It, it bears, it's worth going back to the, the timeline here. December 14th, we learned at the beginning of this hearing from Bill Barr, from Jason Miller, from Ivanka Trump, from a number of people within Donald Trump's orbit, his aides and his personal advisors. Uh, December 14th was the end. That's when states certified the election. That That is when it was over. And yet, on December 16th, there's that executive order, that draft executive order that Sidney Powell does. And then on December 18th, there's that Oval Office meeting that we've been talking about, devolves into craziness. It's called Unhinged, where Sidney Powell and the CEO of Overstock.com and Mike Flynn are all trying to come up with a way to to claim fraud and keep the president in office, even though the president's professionals are saying, no, it's, it can't happen, it's done, it's over. And so after that, after Donald Trump hears that there's nowhere to go with the Sidney Powell version of things, the Venezuela and the voting machines and the Nets thermostats, that's when he sends out the tweet to look forward to January 6th, the day that Mike Pence and Congress would certify the election. I want to know how he knew about that date. When was that date discussed with the president of the United States? How did he know to turn there? That would be my next question, Andrea. 
Precisely, because when you look at this, Frank Figlusi, they had already established uh, the series of events where they tried to influence the election count. They called Brad Raffensperger. They tried in the state legislatures. They tried to get their own electors established. As Ms. Cheney was recounting at the beginning of today's hearing, then, of course, they tried, um, excuse me, to influence Mike Pence. But, Frank, this was the critical moment where they decided to take another action. Uh, apparently, according to Haley Talbot, our producer, that they're they're having some technical issues, so they're about to reconvene. But they're, we're seeing that the they're trying to resolve those as we see the witnesses waiting. So uh, this could be a time where we could play some of the tape of the video that they played showing this climactic meeting, if we've got that available. I think Frank, All right, I think that, that video is, is not yeah, quite ready. Yeah, we're trying to get ready. Tape ready. I'm, I'm, I'm going to have that ready in a moment. To ask Frank this, because I'm seeing, them, seeing him on the screen. Frank, um, establishing the link right back to Donald Trump in terms of his intent. Donald Trump um, says that go to January 6th, it's going to be wild, we're going to protest. Uh, the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys and others online take it as a, a call to action, a call to arms. How much farther do you need to go? What else do you need, though, to prove Donald Trump's intent, that he understood what he was doing when he called people to the Capitol? He understood how they would react. So a couple of thoughts here. First, you heard Joyce earlier say that this remains a challenge prosecutively, right? Because you've got direct evidence and you've got hearsay evidence and the president the former president's always going to claim plausible deniability look i i thought there was fraud i don't i didn't believe most of the people in the room i thought i wanted to pursue all available options to me and i didn't want to give it up and so you know i, I that's just my story here's the problem though let's to, to at the risk of overusing chuck's bank robbery uh analogy <laughs> let's continue with it you, you think you, you think the bank owes you money, right? There's some dispute going on about what they owe you. You decide, I'm going to go in and rob the place. And then at your trial, you go, look, I, I really thought the bank owed me money, and, and here's why. You still broke the law. You still robbed the bank. Now, maybe at sentencing, the judge or the jury is going to go easier on you because they think, yeah, you know, maybe he had some valid concern about being owed money. But you you violated federal law and you robbed the bank. That's where I am on this, right? He can claim he had some reasons in his own mind, despite all the experts telling him differently. But he robbed the bank. He tried to rob an election. And, and that's what he did. And so I, I think that's a convincing argument. And as Liz Cheney said at the very beginning, he's a 76-year-old man, he's, he's an adult, he's not a child. So they played repeatedly all of these lawyers, you know, Eric Hirschman and Pat Cipollone and the Attorney General telling him the election is over, it's been decided. And they're still trying to find some other way around an election that had been decided, Chet Rosenberg. That's right. Um, you know, I, I think what Frank just said is compelling. Let me just offer what the other side would argue president trump is in a room on december 18th with some really really bad advisors and some really really bad lawyers Rudy Giuliani and pals and he's also there with some really good lawyers like pat cipollone and so a defense attorney would argue why isn't he andrea entitled to listen to the bad ones 
And so you'd have to also show, in addition to the fact that they lost all of these court cases and nobody is adducing evidence, that the president's reliance on his bad lawyers and the president's reliance on his bad advisors was in bad faith. I think this was the point that Joyce was making earlier, much more eloquently than me. This is a hard thing to do. We see lots of evidence of how vile Trump is, how vindictive he is, how vain he is. I don't know why these are all V words, but bear with me. Um, But you would also have to show that his reliance on bad lawyers and bad advisors was in bad faith. And for a prosecutor to do that, they need a lot of evidence, meaning they have to talk to all of the people in the room. And that's what makes this a difficult journey. You know, I go back to... uh... Ari Milber's metaphor, which was the taking the wrong suitcase at the airport and leaving with it unintentionally because it looks like your suitcase. What if you're told it's not your suitcase and there's a label on it that says it's not your suitcase and if you still take it out, are you still liable? Are you still responsible for stealing? Can you prove the intent was there even if you thought despite being told that it wasn't yours, that it was still yours. Uh, The committee is coming back in, saving me from this metaphor. Chairman Benny Thompson, uh, Vice Chair Liz Cheney, uh, they will, the chair will gavel down in a moment. Again, they'll be talking to two witnesses who are going to testify. Jason Van Tatenhove, he's the former Oath Keeper spokesman, and witness Stephen Ayers, an Ohio man who pleaded guilty last month to one federal charge of disorderly conduct after a legally entering the Capitol on January 6, 2021. We might hear from him that he went there because he thought Donald Trump told him to. I believe the gavel is going to come down any second now, so let us listen in. Committee will be in order. The chair recognizes the gentleman from Maryland, Mr. Raskin. Mr. Chairman, President Trump's tweet drew tens of thousands of Americans to Washington to form the angry crowd that would be transformed on January the 6th into a violent mob. Dr. Donnell Harvin, who was the chief of Homeland Security and Intelligence for D.C., told the committee how his team saw Trump's December 19th tweet unite violent groups across the spectrum on the far right. We, we, we got derogatory information from OSIN suggesting that uh, some very, very violent individuals uh, were organizing uh, to come to D.C. And not only were they um, organizing to come to D.C., but they were uh, these groups, uh, these non-aligned uh, groups were aligning. Um, and so the, the, the red, all the red flags went up at that point. You know, when you have our militia, um, uh, you know, collaborating with white supremacy groups, collaborating with... Um, uh, conspiracy theory groups online, all toward the common goal. You start seeing uh, what we call in, in you know terrorism a blended ideology, and that's a very very bad sign. Then w- when they were clearly across, not just across one platform, but across multiple platforms of these groups coordinating, not just like chatting, hey, how's it going? You know, <laughs> what's the weather like where you're at? But like, what are you bringing? What are you wearing? Uh, you know, where 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 do we meet up? Uh, do you have plans for the Capitol? That's operational. That's like pre-operational intelligence, right? Um, and that that is something that's clearly alarming. Hi, 
I went to watch the X Games in Philadelphia with my family, and we saw a front ramp in the distance, and there were people skating it. We realized that it was women. They were skating this huge ramp. They were blasting airs. I need to pull up. The election for to contest an election, and we saw Cipollone, Pat Cipollone, saying that that was a terrible idea. Bill Barr is saying that that was a terrible idea. He thought it had been put to rest, but it hadn't been. So you also had, in the run-up to that confrontation in the Oval Office, you had the Attorney General, the White House Counsel, saying that they told the president this was a terrible, terrible idea that the election had been decided, and that. It had been contested, and that that's not the way we contest elections in the United States. Saying Cipollone on tape. Also saying that it, he didn't feel like he even needed to explain why the government couldn't seize voting machines, that it was absolutely crazy. That's not what we do in this country. It, it bears, it's worth going back to yeah, the, the timeline here. December 14th, say. we learned at the beginning of this hearing. Because everybody Barr, should know this. Jason he Miller, has, Ivanka Trump, Trump has Hitler's mind comp his on his, his bedside table, according uh, to the 14th was divorce the documents with Ivana. The election. That, that is when it was over. And yet, on December 16th, there's an executive order, that draft executive order that Sidney Powell does. And then on December 18th, there's that Oval Office meeting that we've been talking about, devolves into craziness. It's called Unhinged, where Sidney Powell and the CEO of Overstock.com and Mike Flynn are all trying to come up with a way to, to claim fraud and keep the president in office, even though the president's professionals are saying, no, it's, it can't happen, it's done, it's over. And so after that, after Donald Trump hears that there's nowhere to go with the Sidney Powell version of things, the Venezuela and the voting machines and the Nest thermostats, that's when he sends out the tweet to look forward to January 6th, the day that Mike Pence and Congress would certify the election. I want to know how he knew about that date. When was that date discussed with the president of the United States? How did he know to turn there? That would be my next question, Andrea. Precisely, because when you look at this, Frank Figlusi, they had already established uh, the series of events where they tried to influence the election count. They called Brad Raffensperger. They tried in the state legislatures. They tried to get their own electors established. As Ms. Cheney was recounting at the beginning of today's hearing, then, of course, they tried, um, <clears throat> excuse me, to influence Mike Pence. But, Frank, this was the critical moment where they decided to take another action. Uh, apparently, according to Haley Talbot, our producer, that they're, they're having some technical issues, so they're about to reconvene. But they're, we're seeing that the, they're trying to resolve those as we see the witnesses waiting. So uh, this could be a time where we could play some of the tape of the video that they played showing this climactic meeting, if we've got that available. I think Frank, All right, I think that video answer is not yeah, quite ready. ready. Um, I'm going to have that ready in a moment. To ask Frank this, because I'm seeing them, seeing him on the screen. Frank, um, establishing the link right back to Donald Trump in terms of his intent. Donald Trump um, says that go to January 6th, it's going to be wild, we're going to protest. Uh, the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys and others online take it as a, a call to action, a call to arms. How much farther do you need to go? What else do you need, though, to prove Donald Trump's intent, that he understood what he was doing 
when he called people to the Capitol. He understood how they would react. So a couple of thoughts here. First, you heard Joyce earlier say that this remains a challenge prosecutively, right? Because you've got direct evidence and you've got hearsay evidence. And the president, the former president's always going to claim plausible deniability. Look, I, I thought there was fraud. I, don't, I didn't believe most of the people in the room. I thought I wanted to pursue all available options to me and I didn't want to give it up. And so, you know, I, I, that's just my story. Here's the problem, though. Let's, to, to, at the risk of overusing Chuck's bank robbery uh, analogy, <laughs> let's continue with it. You, you, think, you, you think the bank owes you money, right? There's some dispute going on about what they owe you. You decide, I'm going to go in and rob the place. And then at your trial, you go, look, I, I really thought the bank owed me money, and, and here's why. You still broke the law. You still robbed the bank. Now, maybe at sentencing, the judge or the jury is going to go easier on you because they think, yeah, you know, maybe he had some valid concern about being owed money. But you you violated federal law and you robbed the bank. That's where I am on this, right? He can claim he had some reasons in his own mind, despite all the experts telling him differently. But he robbed the bank. He tried to rob an election. And, and that's what he did. And so I, I think that's a convincing argument. And as Liz Cheney said at the very beginning, he's a 76-year-old man. He's, he's an adult. He's not a child. So they played repeatedly all of these lawyers, you know, Eric Hirschman and Pat Cipollone and the attorney general telling him the election is over. It's been decided. And they're still trying to find some other way around an election that had been decided, Chuck Rosenberg. That's right. Um, you know, I, I think what Frank just said is compelling. Let me just offer what the other side would argue president trump is in a room on december 18th with some really really bad advisors and some really really bad lawyers rudy giuliani and pals and he's also there with some really good lawyers like pat cipollone and so a defense attorney would argue why isn't he andrea entitled to listen to the bad ones and so you'd have to also show, in addition to the fact that they lost all of these court cases and nobody is adducing evidence, that the president's reliance on his bad lawyers and the president's reliance on his bad advisors was in bad faith. And I think this was the point that Joyce was making earlier, much more eloquently than me. This is a hard thing to do. We see lots of evidence of how vile Trump is, how vindictive he is, how vain he is. I don't know why these are all V words, but bear with me. Um, but you would also have to show that his reliance on bad lawyers and bad advisors was in bad faith. And for a prosecutor to do that, they need a lot of evidence, meaning they have to talk to all of the people in the room. And that's what makes this a difficult journey. You know, I go back to uh, Ari Melber's metaphor, which was the taking the wrong suitcase at the airport and leaving with it unintentionally because it looks like your suitcase. What if you're told it's not your suitcase and there's a label on it that says it's not your suitcase and if you still take it out, are you still liable? Are you still responsible for stealing? Can you prove the intent was there even if you thought despite being told that it wasn't yours, that it was still yours. Uh, the committee is coming back in, saving me from this metaphor. Chairman Benny Thompson, uh, Vice Chair Liz Cheney, uh, they will, ch the chair will gavel down in a moment. Again, they'll be talking to two witnesses who are going to testify. Jason Van Tatenhove, he's the former Oath Keeper spokesman, and witness Stephen Ayers, an Ohio man who pleaded guilty last month to one federal charge of disorderly conduct after illegally entering the Capitol on January 6, 2021.
we might hear from him that he went there because he thought Donald Trump told him to. I believe the gavel is going to come down any second now, so let us listen in. Committee will be in order. The chair recognizes the gentleman from Maryland, Mr. Raskin. Mr. Chairman, President Trump's tweet drew tens of thousands of Americans to Washington to form the angry crowd that would be transformed on January the 6th into a violent mob. Dr. Donnell Harvin, who is the chief of Homeland Security and Intelligence for D.C., told the committee how his team saw Trump's December 19th tweet unite violent groups across the spectrum on the far right. We, we, we got derogatory information from OSIN suggesting that uh, some very, very violent individuals uh, were organizing uh, to come to D.C. And not only were they um, organizing to come to D.C., but they were uh, these groups... Uh, these non-aligned uh, groups were aligning. Um, and so the, the, the red, all the red flags went up at that point. You know, when you have our militia, um, uh, you know, collaborating with white supremacy groups, collaborating with um, uh, conspiracy theory groups online, all toward the common goal, you start seeing uh, what we call in, in you know, terrorism a blended ideology, and that's a very, very bad sign. And w when they were clearly across, not just across one platform, but across multiple platforms of these groups coordinating, not just like chatting, hey, how's it going, you know, <laughs> what's the weather like where you're at, but like, what are you bringing, what are you wearing, uh, you know, where, where, where do we meet up? Uh, do you have plans for the Capitol? That's operational. That's like pre-operational intelligence, right? Um, and that that is something that's clearly alarming. The Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers are two key groups that responded immediately to President Trump's call. The Proud Boys are a far-right street-fighting group that glorifies violence and white supremacy. The Oath Keepers are extremists who promote a wide range of conspiracy theories and sought to act as a private paramilitary force for Donald Trump. The Department of Justice has charged leaders of both groups with seditious conspiracy to overthrow the government of the United States on January the 6th. Trump's December 19th tweet motivated these two extremist groups, which have historically not worked together to coordinate their activities. December 19th at 10.22 a.m., just hours after President Trump's tweet, Kelly Meggs, the head of the Florida Oath Keepers, declared an alliance among the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, and the Florida Three Percenters, another militia group. He wrote, we have decided to work together and shut this shit down. Phone records obtained by the select committee show that later that afternoon, Mr. Meggs called Proud Boys leader Enrique Terrio, and they spoke for several minutes. The very next day, the Proud Boys got to work. The Proud Boys launched an encrypted chat called the Ministry of Self-Defense. The committee obtained hundreds of these messages, which show strategic and tactical planning about January the 6th, including maps of Washington, D.C. that pinpoint the location of police. In the weeks leading up to the attack, leaders in both the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers worked with Trump allies. One such ally was Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, Trump's former national security advisor and one of the participants in the unhinged meeting at the White House on December 18th. He also had connections to the Oath Keepers. This photo from December 12th 
shows Flynn and Patrick Byrne, another Trump ally, who was present at that December 18th meeting, guarded by indicted oath keeper Roberto Minuta. Another view of the scene shows Oath Keeper's leader, Stuart Rhodes, in the picture as well. Another central figure with ties to this network of extremist groups was Roger Stone, a political consultant and longtime confidant of President Trump. He pardoned both Flynn and Stone in the weeks between the election on November 3rd and January 6th. In the same time frame, Stone communicated with both the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers regularly. The committee obtained encrypted content from a group chat from a group chat called Friends of Stone, FOS, which included Stone, Rhodes, Tario, and Ali Alexander. The chat focused on various pro-Trump events in November and December of 2020, as well as January 6th. As you can see here, Stuart Rhodes himself urged the Friends of Stone to have people go to their state capitals if they could not make it to Washington for the first million mega march on November 14th. These Friends of Roger Stone had a significant presence at multiple pro-Trump events after the election, including in Washington on December the 12th. On that day, Stuart Rhodes called for Donald Trump to invoke martial law, promising bloodshed if he did not. He needs to know from you that you are with him, that he does not do it now. While he is commander-in-chief, we're going to have to do it ourselves later in a much more desperate, much more bloody war. Let's get it on now while he is still the commander-in-chief. That night, the Proud Boys engaged in violence on the streets of Washington and hurled aggressive insults at the police. Do your fucking job! Give us one hour! One hour! Just the previous night, the co-host of InfoWars issued an ominous warning at a rally alongside Roger Stone and Proud Boys leader Enrique Tarrio. chats obtained by the select committee showed that Kelly Meggs, the indicted leader of the Florida Oath Keeper, spoke directly with Roger Stone about security on January 5th and 6th. In fact, on January 6th, Stone was guarded by two Oath Keepers who have since been criminally indicted for seditious conspiracy. One of them later pleaded guilty and, according to the Department of Justice, admitted that the Oath Keepers were ready to use, quote, lethal force if necessary against anyone who tried to remove President Trump from the White House, including the National Guard. As we've seen, the Proud Boys were also part of the Friends of Stone network. Stone's ties to the Proud Boys go back many years. He's even taken their so-called fraternity creed required for the first level of initiation to the group. Sorrell, 
a lawyer who assists the Oath Keepers and a volunteer lawyer for the Trump campaign, explained to the committee how Roger Stone and other figures brought extremists of different stripes and views together. You mentioned that Mr. Stone wanted to start the Stop the Steal series of rallies. Who did you consider the leader of these rallies? It sounds like, from what you just said, it was Mr. Stone, Mr. Jones, and Mr. Ali Alexander. Is that correct? Those are the ones that became like the, the center point for everything. We'll learn more from Ms. Murphy about these individuals and their involvement in the days leading up to the violent attack on January 6th. We'll also hear how they were allowed to speak at a rally for President Trump the night before January 6th, even though organizers had expressed serious concerns about their violent and extremist rhetoric directly to Mark Meadows. And you'll hear testimony from White House aides who were with the president as he watched the crowd from the Oval Office and will testify about how excited he was for the following day. Let me note now that our investigation continues on these critical issues. We have only shown a small fraction of what we have found. I look forward to the public release of more of our findings later, Mr. Chairman, and I now yield back. Gentleman yields back. Chair recognizes the gentlewoman from Florida, Ms. Murphy. During our most recent hearing, the committee showed some evidence of what President Trump, Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, and other White House officials knew about the potential for violence on January 6th. And despite this information, they made no effort to cancel the rally, halt the march to the Capitol, or even to lower the temperature among President Trump's supporters. Katrina Pearson, one of the organizers of January 6th rally and a former campaign spokeswoman for President Trump, grew increasingly apprehensive after learning that multiple activists had been proposed as speakers for the January 6th rally. These included some of the people we discussed earlier in this hearing, Roger Stone, a longtime outside advisor to President Trump. Alex Jones, the founder of the conspiracy theory website InfoWars. And Ali Alexander, an activist known for his violent political rhetoric. On December 30th, Ms. Pearson exchanged text messages with another key rally organizer about why people like Mr. Alexander and Mr. Jones were being suggested as speakers at the president's rally on January 6th. Ms. Pearson's explanation was, POTUS, and she remarks that the president likes the crazies. The committee asked Ms. Pearson about these messages, and this is what she said. So when you said that he likes the crazies, were you talking about President Trump? Yes, I was talking about President Trump. He loved people who viciously defended him in public. But consistent in terms of the support for these people, at least with what the president likes from what you could tell. Yes, the, the people that would be very, very vicious and publicly defending him. On January 2nd, Ms. Pearson's concerns about the potential rally speakers had grown serious enough that she reached out to Mr. Meadows directly. She wrote, Good afternoon. Would you mind giving me a call regarding this January 6th event? Things have gotten crazy and I desperately need some direction. Please. According to phone records obtained by the committee, Ms. Pearson received a phone call from Mr. Meadows eight minutes later. Here's what Ms. Pearson said about that conversation. So what specifically did you tell him, though, about other 
other events. Just that there were a bunch of entities coming in. Um, some were very suspect, but they're going to be on other on other stages, um, some on other days. A very, very brief overview um, of what was actually happening um, and why I raised the red flags. And when you told him that people were very suspect, what, what did, did you tell him what you meant by that? Or what did you convey to him about what you were um, the problems with these folks? I think I even texted him some of my concerns, um, but I did briefly go over some of the concerns that I had raised to everybody with Alex Jones or Ali Alexander and some of the rhetoric that they were doing. I probably mentioned to him um, that they had already caused trouble at other capitals or, or at the previous event, the previous march that they did for protesting, um, and I just had a concern about it. Ms. Pearson was especially concerned about Ali Alexander and Alex Jones because in November 2020, both men and some of their supporters had entered the Georgia State Capitol to protest the results of the 2020 election. Ms. Pearson believed that she mentioned this to Mark Meadows on this January 2nd call. Notably, January 2nd is the same day on which, according to Cassidy Hutchinson, Ms. Meadows, Mr. Meadows warned her of things that things might get real, real bad on January 6th. After her January 2nd call with Mr. Meadows, Katrina Pearson sent an email to fellow rally organizers. She wrote, POTUS expectations are to have something intimate at the ellipse and call on everyone to march to the Capitol. President's own documents suggest that the president had decided to call on his supporters to go to the Capitol on January 6th, but that he chose not to widely announce it until his speech on the ellipse that morning. The committee has obtained this draft, updated, uh, undated tweet from the National Archives. It includes a stamp stating, President has seen. The draft tweet reads, I will be making a big speech at 10 a.m. on January 6th at the Ellipse, south of the White House. Please arrive early. Massive crowds expected. March to the Capitol after. Stop the steal. Although this tweet was never sent, Rally organizers were discussing and preparing for the march to the Capitol in the days leading up to January 6th. This is a January 4th text message from a rally organizer to Mike Lindell, the MyPillow CEO. The organizer says, you know, this stays between us. We're having a second stage at the Supreme Court again after the ellipse. POTUS is going to have us march there slash the Capitol. It cannot get out about the second stage because people will try and set up another and sabotage it. It can also not get out about the march because I will be in trouble with the National Park Service and all the agencies. But POTUS is going to just call for it, quote, unexpectedly. The end of the message indicates that the president's plan to have his followers march to the Capitol was not being broadly discussed. And then on the morning of January 5th, Ali Alexander, whose firebrand style concerned Katrina Pearson, sent a similar text to a conservative journalist. Mr. Alexander said, tomorrow, ellipse, then U.S. Capitol. Trump is supposed to order us to the Capitol at the end of his speech, but we will see. President Trump did follow through on his plan, using his January 6th speech to tell his supporters to march to the Capitol on January 6th. The evidence confirms that this was not a spontaneous call to action, but rather was a deliberate strategy decided upon in advance by the president. 
Another part of the president's strategy involves certain members of Congress who amplified his unsupported assertions that the election had been stolen. In the weeks after the election, the White House coordinated closely with President Trump's allies in Congress to disseminate his false claims and to encourage members of the public to fight the outcome on January 6. We know that the president met with various members to discuss January 6 well before the joint session. The president's private schedule for De December 21st, 2020 shows a private meeting with Republican members of Congress. We know that Vice President Pence, Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, and Rudy Giuliani also attended that meeting. We obtained an email that was sent from Congressman Mo Brooks of Alabama to Mark Meadows setting up that meeting. The subject line is White House meeting December 21st regarding January 6th. In his email, Congressman Brooks explained that he had not asked anyone to join him in the, quote, January 6th effort. Because in his view, quote, only citizens can exert the necessary influence on senators and congressmen to join this fight against massive voter fraud and election theft. At this point, you may also recall testimony given in our earlier hearing by Acting Attorney General Richard Donahue, who said that the president asked the Department of Justice to, quote, just say that the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. According to White House visitor logs obtained by the committee, members of Congress present at the White House on December 21st included Congressman Brian Babin, Andy Biggs, Matt Gates, Louis Gohmert, Paul Gosar, Andy Harris, Jody Heiss, Jim Jordan, and Scott Perry. Then Congresswoman-elect Marjorie Taylor Greene was also there. We heard testimony in an early hearing that a pardon was ultimately requested by Congressman Mo Brooks and other members of Congress who attended this meeting. We've asked witnesses what happened during the December 21st meeting, and we've learned that part of the discussion centered on the role of the vice president during the counting of the electoral votes. These members of Congress were discussing what would later be known as the Eastman theory, which was being pushed by attorney John Eastman. In one of our earlier hearings, you heard in great detail that President Trump was trying to convince Vice President Pence to do something illegal. His White House counsel confirmed all of that in testimony last week. Your view, Mr. Cipollone, upon that, those discussions with Mr. Philbin, with Greg Jacob, what, what was your assessment as to what the Vice President could or could not do at the joint session? What was my assessment about what he could or couldn't do? Yes. Your view of the issue. My view is that the vice president had, didn't have a legal authority to do anything except what he did. They've both told us, Mr. Feldman and Mr. Jacob, that they looked very closely at the Eastman memos, the Eastman theory, and thought that it had no basis, that it was not a strategy that the president should pursue. It sounds like that's consistent with your impression as well. My impression would have been informed certainly by them. Campaign senior advisor Jason Miller told us that Mr. Cipollini thought John Eastman's theories were nutty, something Mr. Cipollini wouldn't refute. We received testimony from various people about this. That one was Jason Miller, who was a, a campaign, um, said that the way it was communicated to me was that Pat Cipollini thought the idea was nutty and at one point confronted Eastman basically with the same sentiment. I don't have any reason to contradict what he said. On January 4th, John Eastman went to the White House to meet with the president and vice president. 
Mr. Cipollini tried to participate in this meeting, but he was apparently turned away. You didn't go to the meeting in the Oval Office where Eastman met with the president and vice president. Do you know, do you remember why you didn't personally attend? I did walk to that meeting and I did go into the Oval Office with the idea of attending that meeting and then I ultimately did not attend that meeting. Why not? The reasons for that are privileged. Okay. Were you asked to not attend the meeting or did you make a personal decision not to attend the meeting? Again, without getting into... Recall that Greg Jacob, the vice president's counsel, stated that Mr. Eastman acknowledged he would lose nine to zero if his legal theory were challenged in the Supreme Court. Mr. Cipollini had reviewed Mr. Eastman's legal theory and expressed his view repeatedly that the vice president was right. He even offered to take the blame for the vice president's position. I thought that the vice president did not have the authority to do what was being suggested under a proper reading of the law. I conveyed that. Okay. I think I actually told somebody that, you know, in the vice president's just blame me. Just, you know, this is, I'm not a politician. You know, I don't, and, but, you know, I just said, I'm a lawyer. This is my legal opinion. I, but let me tell you this. Can I say a word about the vice president, please? I think the vice president did the right thing. I think he did the courageous thing. I have a great deal of respect for Vice President Pence. I work with him very closely. I think he understood my opinion. I think he understood my opinion afterwards as well. I think he did a great service to this country. And I think I, I suggested to somebody that he should be given the presidential medal for, for his actions. Earlier this year, a federal district court judge concluded that President Trump and Mr. Eastman, relying on Mr. Eastman's theory, more likely than not violated multiple federal criminal laws in their pressure campaign against the vice president. Also recall earlier in this hearing, we saw that Rudy Giuliani's team did not have actual evidence of fraud sufficient to change the result of the election. That's important because as January 6th approached, the Republican members of the House and Senate were looking for a reason to object to the electors, and no real evidence was ever given to them. And we know that Republican members of the House received a memorandum from the chairwoman of the House Republican Caucus in the days before January 6th, explaining in detail the many constitutional and legal problems with objections and describing the principal judicial rulings dismissing the claims of widespread fraud. But their plan to object to the certification of the election on January 6th went forward anyway. The next day, on January 5th, the day before the attack on the Capitol, tens of thousands of people converged on Washington. While certain close associates of President Trump privately expressed concerns about what would occur on January 6th, other members of the president's inner circle spoke with great anticipation about the events to come. The committee has learned from the White House phone logs that the president spoke to Steve Bannon, his close advisor, at least twice on January 5th. The first conversation they had lasted for 11 minutes. Listen to what Mr. Bannon said that day after the first call he had with the president. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. It's all converging and now we're on, as they say, the point of attack, right? The point of attack tomorrow. I'll tell you this, 
it's not going to happen like you think it's going to happen. Okay, it's going to be quite extraordinarily different. And all I can say is strap in. From those same phone logs, we know that the president and Mr. Bannon spoke again on the phone that evening, this time for six minutes. That same day, on the eve of January 6, supporters of President Trump gathered in Washington, D.C. at another rally. This rally was held at Freedom Plaza, which is located near the White House, and featured some of the speakers who Katrina Pearson and others deemed too extreme to share the stage with the president the next morning. And as this rally was underway, the president asked members of his staff to come to the Oval Office. Let's hear from the White House aides who were in the Oval Office that night. I was in the office, in the Oval Office, and he had asked me to open the door so that he could hear. Um, I guess there was a concert or a rap or something going on. Did he say anything other than just open the door? He, he made a comment. I don't remember specifically what he said, but there was a lot of energy. When we walked in, uh, the staff was um, kind of standing up and assembled along the wall. And the president was at the desk uh, and Dan Scavino was on the couch. And the president was... Um, dictating a tweet that he wanted um, Scavino to send out. Then the president started talking about the rally the next day. Um, he had the door of um, the Oval open to the Rose Garden because you could hear um, the crowd already assembled outside on the ellipse and they were um, playing music. And um, it was so loud that you could feel it shaking in the Oval. He was in... Um, a very good mood. And I say that because he had not been in a good mood for weeks leading up to that. And then it seemed like he was in a fantastic mood um, that evening. Being asked if, if members of Congress would be with him tomorrow. And what did you understand by me voting in his favor as opposed to physically with him or anything like that? Yeah, I, I took that to the not voting to certify the election. Then he did look to the staff and ask for um, ideas of how, if I recall, he said um, that we could make the rhinos do the right thing is the way he phrased it. And um, no one spoke up initially because I think everyone was trying to process what that he meant by that. The president was making notes then, talking then about we should go up to the Capitol, what's the best route to go to the Capitol. Instead, we should focus on policy accomplishments. I didn't mention. What was his response? Did he acknowledge that and, and said we've had a lot? Something along those lines. And then the president could hear the sound of the crowd and the music at the rally at the Freedom Plaza. 
And these are some of the things that they were saying there at the plaza, just blocks from where the president sat that evening, excited for the next day. This is nothing less than an epic struggle for the future of this country between dark and light, between the godly and the godless, between good and evil. And we will win this fight or America will step off into a thousand years of darkness. Tomorrow, tomorrow, trust me, the American people that are standing on the soil that we are standing on tonight, and they're going to be standing on this soil tomorrow, this is soil that we have fought over, fought for, and we will fight for in the future. The members, the members of Congress, the members of the House of Representatives, the members of the, of the United States Senate, those of, the, those of you who are feeling weak tonight, those of you that don't have the moral fire in your body, get some tonight because tomorrow we the people are going to be here and we want you to know that we will not stand for a lie. We will not stand for a lie. I want them to know that 1776 is always an option. At 5.05 p.m., as the Freedom Plaza rally was underway just blocks away, President Trump tweeted, Washington is being inundated with people who don't want to see an election victory stolen by emboldened radical left Democrats. Our country has had enough. They won't take it anymore. To the crowds gathering in D.C., he added, we hear you and love you from the Oval Office. The committee has learned that on January 5th, there were serious concerns at Twitter about the anticipated violence the next day. Listen to what the Twitter witness told us about their desperate efforts to get Twitter to do something. What was your, your gut feeling on the night of January 5th? I believe I sent a Slack message to someone that said something along the lines of, when people are shooting each other tomorrow, I will try and rest in the knowledge that we tried. Um, and so I went to, I don't know that I slept that night, to be honest with you. Um, I, I was on pins and needles um, because again, for, for months I had been begging and anticipating and attempting to raise the reality that if nothing, if we made no intervention into what I saw occurring, people were going to die. Um, and on January 5th, I realized no intervention was coming. Uh, and, no, there, and even as, as hard as I had tried to create one uh, or implement one, there was nothing and we were we were at the limbs um, and the mercy of a violent crowd that was locked and loaded. And just for the record, this was content that was echoing 
statements by the former president, but also Proud Boys um, and other um, known violent extremist groups. Yeah. There were also concerns among members of Congress. We have a recently released recording of a conversation that took place among Republican members in the U.S. Capitol on the eve of January 6th. This is Republican Congresswoman Debbie Lesko from Arizona, who led some of the unfounded objections to the election results. I also asked leadership to come up with a safety plan for members. I'm actually very concerned about this because we have who knows how many hundreds of thousands of people coming here. We have Antifa. Uh, We also have, quite honestly, Trump supporters who actually believe that we are going to overturn the election. And when that doesn't happen, most likely will not happen, they are going to go nuts. That same evening, as President Trump listened to the rally from the Oval Office, he was also working on his speech to be delivered the next day. And based on documents we've received from the National Archives, including multiple drafts of the president's speech, as well as from witness testimony, we understand how that speech devolved into a call to action and a call to fight. One of the first edits President Trump made to his speech was to incorporate his 5.05 p.m. tweet, revising his speech to say, all of us are here today, do not want to see our election victory stolen by emboldened radical left Democrats. Our country has had enough. We will not take it anymore. He also added, together, we will stop the steal. President Trump's edits continued into the morning of January 6. And as you can see from the president's daily diary here, the president spoke to his chief speechwriter, Stephen Miller, for over 25 minutes that morning. Following his call with Mr. Miller, President Trump inserted for the first time a line in his speech that said, quote, And we will see whether Mike Pence enters history as a truly great and courageous leader. All he has to do is refer the illegally submitted electoral votes back to the states that were given false and fraudulent information where they want to recertify. No prior version of this speech had referenced Vice President Pence or his role during the joint session on January 6th. These last-minute edits by President Trump to his speech were part of the president's pressure campaign against his own vice president. But not everyone wanted these lines regarding the vice president included in the president's speech, including White House lawyer Eric Hirschman. Did you ever speak to anybody in the White House at the time about this disagreement uh, between the president and the vice president other than the president based on the objection from your counsel? Um, Maybe had a brief conversation about it with uh, Eric Hirschman. Tell me about that. What do you remember him saying to you about this disagreement? Um, I just remember him um, saying that um, that he had a um, I don't know if I get this wrong. I was sort of some of the effect of um, thinking that it would be counterproductive. I think he thought to um, uh, to discuss the matter publicly. So it came up in the context of editing the president's speech on January the 6th. I just came up with the conversation where Eric knew it was in the speech, and so he had a, a sidebar with me about it. And so the speechwriters took that advice and removed the lines about Vice President Pence. Later that morning at 11.20 a.m., President Trump had a phone call with the vice president. 
And as the committee detailed in an earlier hearing, that phone call was, by all accounts, tense and heated. During this call, the vice president told the president that he would not attempt to change the outcome of the election. In response, the president called the vice president of the United States a wimp and other derogatory words. As you can see in this email, after Vice President Pence told President Trump that he would not unilaterally deliver him a second term in office, the speechwriters were directed to reinsert the Mike Pence lines. Here's how one of the speechwriters described President Trump's last minute change to the speech. And as I recall, there was a very tough, um, a tough sentence about the vice president that was, that was, was added. President Trump wanted to use his speech to attack Vice President Pence in front of a crowd of thousands of angry supporters who had been led to believe the election was stolen. When President Trump arrived at the Ellipse to deliver his speech, he was still worked up from his call with Vice President Pence. And although Ivanka Trump would not say so, her chief of staff gave the committee some insight into the president's frustration. It's been reported that you ultimately decided to attend the rally because you hoped that you would calm the president and keep the event on an even keel. Is that accurate? No, I, I don't know who said that or where that came from. What did she share with you about why it was concerning that her father was upset or agitated after that call with Vice President Pence in relation to the Ellipse rally? Why did that matter? Why did he have to be calmed down, I should say? Well, she shared that he had called the vice president a not an expletive word. I think that bothered her. And I think she could tell based on the conversations and what was going on in the office that he was angry and upset and people were providing misinformation. And she felt like she might be able to help calm the situation down, um, at least before he went on to stage. The president did go on stage, and then he gave the speech that he wanted to give. It included the formal changes he had requested the night before and in that morning, but also many important last-minute ad-lib changes. A single scripted reference in the speech to Mike Pence became eight. A single scripted reference to rally goers marching to the Capitol became four, with President Trump ad-libbing that he would be joining the protesters at the Capitol. Added throughout his speech were references to fighting and the need for people to have courage and to be strong. The word peacefully was in the staff written script and used only once. Here are some of these ad-lib changes that the president made to his speech. Because you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. So I hope Mike has the courage to do what he has to do. And I hope he doesn't listen to the rhinos and the stupid people that he's listening to. We fight like hell. And if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. But we're going to try and give our Republicans the weak ones because the strong ones don't need any of our help. We're going to try and give them the kind of pride and boldness that they need to take back our country. 
So let's walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. White House counsel Pat Cipollone and his deputy did not attend the speech, and they were concerned that the statements in the speech about the election were false. In fact, the message that President Trump delivered that day was built on a foundation of lies. He lied to his supporters that the election was stolen. He stoked their anger. He called for them to fight for him. He directed them to the U.S. Capitol. He told them he would join them, and his supporters believed him and many headed towards the Capitol. As a result, people died. People were injured. Many of his supporters' lives will never be the same. President Trump's former campaign manager, Brad Parscale, recognized the impact of the speech immediately. And this is what he said on January 6th in excerpts from text messages to Katrina Pearson. 